0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit stonegate-church.com. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 23, so if you want to go ahead and turn there, that would be great. But before we get going, I want you to just go ahead and grab the, uh, there should be a little blue commitment card under your seat. just want you to go ahead and just grab that for just a brief moment. Uh, If you have been, uh, if you've missed the last couple of weeks, March the 6th was one of those defining days in the life of our church. It was that day where, you know, there's been a long lead up to this moment. We had a sermon series called All In. Um, and a lot of work to kind of go in the background for the last six or eight months, really, to lead up to March 6th. But March March the 6th was a day where, as a church family, we have been wrestling with the Lord over our generosity over the next two years. And uh, after wrestling with the Lord, March 6th was the day that that most of our church family made a decision that, that kind of marked that one number that represents sacrificial and glad-hearted generosity over the next two years. So March 6th was the day that we filled out a card that looks like this one, that's under your seat, and we gave that to the Lord. We made that commitment to the Lord. And you know, from day one, we have said that our number one goal is 100% participation, that everyone who calls Stonegate home would be on this journey of faith of opening up your life and heart to the Lord and allowing him to direct you and talk to you and lead you into what your generosity going to look like over the next two-year period. And so um, March the 6th was the day that, that we made that commitment. And if you have not done that yet, I know that it's been spring break, so it's kind of been a crazy month for our church family. And if you have not done that yet, th- you still have time to do that. April the 10th is kind of our, our uh, major marker day. We're going to announce kind of our collective commitments and tell stories about what the Lord's been up to in us. So you still have an opportunity to do that. And so this commitment card is under your seat to give those who have missed the last few weeks a chance to do that in a really easy way. So I just want to encourage you, if you haven't done that yet, but you know the Lord's working on you and getting you to that place and you're you're ready to do that today, then you can take this card and fill it out, that inside section. On the left side is kind of your one-year totals times two is a two-year total, considering your stored resources. If those lines are helpful for you, great. But the most important line is that one that's kind of highlighted there, the one in blue, my two-year commitment. If you'll make sure, if you're ready to do that today, if you'll pray through through the service, and if you're ready today... Um, You can fill out that that blue slot, put your name, phone, email, all that stuff, so we'll have a record of that. And then at the end of the service, we'll pass around an offering basket, and you can put this card in the offering basket at the end, and that will get to the right places for all that to go down. So I want to just take a moment to thank the Lord um, through prayer for what the Lord has already done in our church family through All In, and then to pray for those of you who are going to be making your commitment today. So why don't you pray with me? Father, we um, are just really humbled as a church family to see the many stories that have been happening over the last few months inside of our church. And Lord, it has been for me one of the most humbling seasons as a pastor that I've ever had to watch people give in ways that are going to alter their lives, give in ways that are really, at the end of two years, it's gonna change them. And Father, I'm so grateful that you have talked to us in those sort of ways and been leading us in those sort of ways. And so, Father, I pray that, that for those today who you're going to be talking to and they're going to be wrestling with what does that two year number look like, um, Father, I pray that you would speak clearly to them and you would give them the courage to move in faith and to take that plunge with you. So, Father, would you talk to them today? Would you lead them today? And, Lord, would you give them that courage that they're going to need? And it's in your good name that we ask that. Amen. Okay, so Matthew chapter 23 is where we are, Matthew chapter 23. And let me just start in Matthew, kind of backing up a couple of chapters, all the way back to Matthew chapter 21. In Matthew 21, when you start the chapter, palm branches are waving. They just, the moment we just had with our kids a minute ago, and that was kind of cool. The moment we just had with our kids a minute ago, they had with, you know, with Jesus. So that, that, you know, palm branches are waving, everything is going great. Um, but it's important for you to know that everything is not great in that moment. That, uh, you know, although it looks like on the surface surface that that everyone is happy and everyone is joyful, right under the surface, you know, if the tenor on the surface is joyful, right under the surface, you could cut the tension with a knife. It is not all as well in Jerusalem as Jesus comes in. For months now, the Pharisees have been plotting the, the death of Jesus. So they had one aim. How are we going to kill this man, Jesus? What's it going to take to do that? They've been plotting this for for months and months. And so that's the reason that as soon as you have Jesus in this really joyous moment, bust into Jerusalem, he's on a donkey, palm branches everywhere. It looks so great. This is why in Matthew 21, the next thing that you see him do is walk into the temple, weave a whip together and drive out some money changers. I mean, this is Jesus with a still spine. This is Jesus saying hard things. This is Jesus doing hard things. He knows that right under the surface, the tension is really, really heavy. It is really, really thick, and he runs directly to that tension. This is why you have all the conflict in Matthew 21 and 22 and 23. And by the time you get to Matthew 23, he is ready to deliver some uppercuts of truth to the Pharisees. So if you look at Matthew 23, you'll kind of see what this looks like. You know, in verse 13, he's looking at the Pharisees, and he is saying some of his hardest and sharpest words that Jesus ever says in his life. He is saying them right now in Matthew 23 to the Pharisees. Look at verse 13. But woe to you, you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Woe is you. Why? Why is woe them? For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You, you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter it to go in. I mean, these are hard words. If you skip down to verse 25, here it comes again. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Why is he pronouncing this woe over them? Verse 25, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. You come down to verse 27, another just uppercut of hard truth woe to you scribes and pharisees you hypocrites i mean could you imagine god in the flesh looking at you and saying woe is you you hypocrite that is a bad day for anyone he goes on to clarify why is he saying this for you are like the whitewashed tombs which outwardly you appear beautiful but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I mean, this is Jesus in the octagon, isn't it? I mean, this is Jesus unleashed. It's just, I mean, flipping tables, you know, weaving whips. I mean, this is Jesus. This is tough Jesus. This is Jesus, gloves on, unleashed, ready to do battle. It is that Jesus. I was listening to a guy talk about a meeting he had with an African-American pastor here recently. And uh, the meeting went like this. They started talking and then they were um, talking about just what are you looking forward to about heaven? Like when you look forward and think about that day, what do you look forward to? And the African-American pastor, as he thought about that for a minute, he, uh, you know, in a a voice probably three octaves deeper than mine, said, uh, do you know what I look forward to? I look forward to that day when Jesus holds up the, the frail and broken body of his bride, the church. And he holds that body up and he shakes it in front of Satan. And shaking it in front of Satan, he looks at Satan and says, do you see this? Do you see this? This is all I had. It's all I had. And I still kicked your butt. Now, when I heard that, I like getting, invis- I stood up, literally stood up from my, my chair that I was sitting in. Did a little invisible chest bump with Jesus in that moment. I'm like, I love that. And there is something appealing about this Jesus, isn't there? This tough Jesus, this still-in-his-spine sort of Jesus, this Jesus who says the hard things and does the hard thing, and that's the picture we're getting of Jesus in Matthew 21, 22, and 23 until you get to the end of chapter 23. And that's where we get a whole different picture of Jesus. I want you to look at the last three verses of of Matthew 23. Now, let me preface, and I want you to look up on the screen before I read these last three verses of Matthew 23, I want you to see the contextual kind of clue that you need to, to have seen once, you know, to read this. In Luke chapter 19, there's this kind of parallel passage, Luke 19 verse 41, where Jesus is drawing near to Jerusalem, and, and here's what it says in Luke 19. Now, I want you to see this as we read Matthew 23. In Luke 19, 41, it says, And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept now, now come down now and let's read Matthew 23, verses 37 and 38. The, the mood is, the scene is set by Jesus weeping. If you've got an ESV Bible, over the top of that little section, you'll see Jesus lamenting over Jerusalem. He is crying, he is weeping, he's very emotional in this moment. And here's what he says in this deeply emotional moment when he is weeping over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Verse 38, see your house is left to you desolate for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now I want you to put these two pictures of Jesus together. The first picture we get of Jesus is Jesus that is tough. It is still in the spine, whip weaving, table turning, hard truth saying Jesus. It's that Jesus. On one hand, we get that picture. and then But that's not the only picture we see in Matthew 23. We do see this tough Jesus, but we also see at the end of this chapter a very tender Jesus. A Jesus that can look over Jerusalem and see them in their sin and misery and ruin and literally just weep over them. I mean, he has this moment where he's looking over this city. He's he's saying, oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem. That's his people, the people of Israel. And he's looking at his people in their misery and ruin. And it is as if the dam in his heart broke open and a stream of tears poured out. And it's this particular Jesus, this Jesus who is tender, that I want to hold up for you today. And and I'm just praying that the Lord would help us see this Jesus and would more and more begin to change our church into this Jesus. That is both tough, yes, truth, yes, but tender, yes, tears, yes. So here's what I want to do. I just want to ask the question. What is causing Jesus to lament and weep over Jerusalem? What is causing that? And then we're gonna answer that with two answers and i want to apply it briefly. So what is causing Jesus to weep in this passage? Number one, here's the first thing causing Jesus to weep in this passage. He is looking at their rejection of him and he's weeping over that. Now look at verse 37 again. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. He's looking at this city and he's grieving it. He's weeping over it. He is in deep anguish. I mean, there is, a, there is an ache in his soul that will not go away because these people that he loves so dearly are refusing him, they're rejecting him. In this moment, they are rejecting the only one who can actually save them. They're refusing him, they're stiff-arming him, and that is causing a deep emotional reaction. He is grieving that. He is heartbroken over that. Now, I want you to see in this passage something that I think is really important. You know, when you think about the rebellion that we see pictured here. So so if you think about this passage as a picture, what we see in the picture is the people of Israel and they are rebelling against God. But this picture is framed by something. It is framed by the kindness of God. And you see that in, in, in verse 37. O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. You see the kindness of God surrounding their particular rebellion, the picture of their rebellion, because God is over and over sending prophets to the people of Israel to warn them of their sin, to urge them to repent of their sin, and to return to God where life and joy and all that they hoped for in life could be found. He's sending prophet after prophet after prophet to them. I mean, it is the kindness of God on display for the people of Israel. And this is the story of the Old Testament, isn't it? It's the, the Lord sending his prophets to the people of Israel and then the people of Israel responding in rebellion and revolt to God by killing and stoning and beating up the prophets of God. I mean, this is the story of the Old Testament. You've got um, Elijah as a, for instance, he was driven into the wilderness and treated like an animal, literally chased down like an animal by the people of Israel. You've got the story of Zechariah who was stoned to death. You've got the story of Isaiah. You know, Isaiah has this great moment in Isaiah chapter six. You know, it's the, the one we all you know, know about it, in terms of Isaiah. It's the moment where he, he peers into the temple and gets this vision of God. And at the end of it, God says, but, but who am I gonna send? Who's gonna go for me? And Isaiah says, man, God, here am I, send me. I mean, it's, it's that verse that we love to talk about, love to put on some coffee cups, love to put on a t-shirt. It's that verse. But we typically don't put the next verse on there. And the next verse is God saying, hey, um, Isaiah, I'm glad you're gonna go, but you need to know something. You're gonna preach for the rest of your life and no one's gonna pay attention. No one's gonna hear it, not gonna happen. It's gonna be a hard life for you, Isaiah, and as tradition has it, at the end of his life, he was sawn in two by the people of Israel. Or how about Jeremiah? Jeremiah had a really tough life. I mean, this brother had it really hard. It was, his life was so hard that he actually wrote a book in the Bible called Lamentations. You know your life was hard if you wrote the book Lamentations, right? I mean, this is why he is called the weeping prophet. It was hard, people did not listen to him. It did not go well with him. Nobody heard his message. Everybody mocked his message. Eventually, the people of Israel put him in prison, put him in stocks, threw him in a pit, and left him for dead. How about our man John the Baptist, another prophet, just the kindness of God, raised up a man who went to the people of Israel to warn them of their sin, to to urge them to repent. But where did John the Baptist's life end? In a dungeon, decapitated. That's the end of his life. I mean, this is the story of the people of Israel. Revolt after revolt against God. God's kindness toward them. Sending prophets to warn them. And in response to that, they kill the prophets. Now put yourself in the place of God for a minute and ask yourself, what would you do if you were God? You just sent all of your good guys, all of your prophets, you sent them to the people of Israel, and yet they just kill one after another of them. You're seeing one after another cut down. What would you do? I'll tell you what I would do. I would rent a whole episode of CSI to figure out how to hide the bodies. That's what I'm doing. Man, this is about to go bad for some people if I'm God in that moment. I love how Martin Luther said it, the reformer. He said, if if I were God and the world had treated me as it treated him, I would kick the wretched thing to pieces. And I feel that if I'm in God's shoes in that moment, that's my response. But aren't we grateful that's not God's response? God's response to all of our wickedness and all of our rebellion to the people of Israel slaying one prophet after another, cutting down one prophet after another. His response to the people of Israel to say, okay, now you've already taken so much of what's good, but now I'm going to actually give you my best. I'm going to send you my beloved son and he's going to live perfectly for you. And then you're going to actually kill him too. On the third day, I'm going to bring him back to life to show my power over Satan's sin and death so that all who will put their faith in him can be reconciled to God. They can be reconciled to me. That is God's kindness to the people of Israel. But over the top of God's kindness is this phrase in verse 37, the last phrase. And you were not willing. It's one of the most tragic statements in all the Bible, isn't it? But you were not willing, even though God has been so kind to you, but you you were not willing. There will be no one who can shake a fist at God and accuse him of a lack of kindness when we stand before him one day. And even in the midst of all of God's kindness, they were still not willing. Now hear what I'm about to say. Their unwillingness in this moment to come to Jesus broke the heart of Jesus. It broke his heart tender, like a tough Jesus, T- table-turning Jesus, that tough Jesus also had such a tender heart that in the moment of the very people who are about to kill him, they're going to reject him in such a violent way that they kill him, that rejection actually caused him to weep over those rebels. Now, let me just take a, a quick moment here and address some of us in the room. For some of us in the room, what is still being written over our life right now is, but you're not willing. Just like the people of Israel, there's not been a moment where you have laid down your arms, laid down your pride, put put down your weapons, admitted your deep and desperate need for God and come to him to receive salvation, to receive the rescue that only Jesus can bring. That moment has still not happened. And and man, I, I want you just to hear this today if that's you, that there is in a very real sense a God in heaven who is weeping over that right now. That there is nothing more tragic to have written over a person's life and they were not willing. And for those of us in the room who that has been written over our life, it doesn't have to be written over our life. Like you can walk out of here with a new thing written over it. You are willing. You have come to him and he's rescued you. And I just want to urge you, if you're in here this morning and you've never come to Jesus, there's never been a moment where you have let down all of your sin or all of your right living to actually come to him and to receive rescue from him. Make this your day for that to happen. This could be your day where a new phrase is written over your life. So here's the first thing that Jesus is weeping over. He is weeping over their rejection of him. Here's the second thing he's weeping over. He's weeping over the ruin following their rejection. So it's not just the fact that they are rejecting him that Jesus is weeping over. It's that Jesus is looking down the road and seeing where their refusal to come to Jesus is heading for them. He is looking down the road and he is seeing that their rejection of him, their refusal of him is leading to their utter ruin. That's the end game of their refusal. It's not just like we can say, Jesus, I'm just gonna like not do your thing and then it's all gonna be okay in the end. Jesus is looking at people who are saying, Jesus, I'm just not into you. I'm just not gonna go that route. And he's looking at that and he is weeping over the fact that he knows that leads to their utter ruin. It goes so, so bad for them. See, the Bible is very clear that there is one way to God. And here's the quick summation of it. It's grace alone through faith alone in Jesus alone. See, the Bible doesn't present Jesus as a menu of options through which we could relate to God. So you can pick Jesus if you like him. You could you know, pick Muhammad if you like him. You could uh, pick Buddha if you like. You can just pick whatever you wanna pick. You just take the, the, anything off the menu and you're gonna be okay in the end. That is not what the Bible says. And by the way, that's not what but Islam says you know, either. But so no, nobody's saying that. So the Bible definitely isn't saying that. I mean, this is kind of the whole point of John 14, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. It's not me as one kind of thing on the big menu of ways to approach God. I am like the thing on the menu. If you want God, it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is the only way we can get God. And and I just want us to feel this for a moment. I want us to feel what this passage is asking us to feel. So much is in the balance as of of picking God. Like a refusal to to submit to God and a refusal to receive Jesus. There is so much in the, heaven and hell is in the balance of that. You know, it's interesting how the Bible talks about heaven. Um, You know, when I think about what the Bible does in regards to heaven, it paints broad strokes of heaven, but it leaves so much detail left for us to fill in and to think about. I could just, the Bible invites, it's it's saying, hey, I'm going to give you these broad strokes, but then I want you to use your imagination and just dream about how good this is about to be. I'm going to wet your taste buds and then you just keep traveling down the road and you dream about that. You fill in the blanks. You think about the best of this life now without sin and just let that take you down the road of what heaven will one day be like. So, so it paints these broad strokes and then kind of has you fill in the, the, the background to that. Now that is exactly how the Bible approaches hell too. It paints it in broad strokes and then allows us to, to kind of fill in the details of the horror and, the, and just the utter ruin that will be hell. And it's that horror and utter ruin that is just causing deep ache and anguish and grief in the heart of Jesus in this moment. So if you think about how the Bible talks about hell, it uses metaphorical language, to to wet our taste buds of the utter ruin that it's going to to contain. So this is a perfect passage that you see this. Verse 38 is a sample of this sort of metaphorical language that is showing us the horrors of what hell will one day be like. Verse 38, see, your house is left to you desolate. It's left to you desolate. Desolate. See, in one sense, this is probably talking about the physical ruin of Jerusalem in 30 or 40 years from now, in 70, um, the, the ruin that happened to Jerusalem and the siege that happened there. So in one part, it's talking about that. But in another part, I think it's looking well beyond that to the spiritual ruin of the people of Israel. It's looking well beyond that. And Jesus is saying, your rejection of me is not just leading to this temporal ruin that's about to happen in your life. It is leading to a much worse thing than that. It is leading to your eternal ruin. It's leading to that, and Jesus weeps over it. See, the, the Bible uses this sort of language. Here, here's more of the biblical language that it uses to describe hell Matthew chapter 24, verse 51, weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't know what that is, I just know it's really, really bad. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, eternal fire. Again, I don't know exactly what that is, but I know that it should make us tremble just to read it. Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, a lake of fire. Matthew chapter 9, verse 41, where the worm does not die and where the fire is not quenched. Do you see what's happening there? Like, what is that language meant to do? It's meant to, to paint a picture of broad strokes, and then we then imagine the whore that is underneath that, that broad stroke bad picture. See, just like in the Bible, the English language is not robust enough to give an accurate picture of heaven. The English language is also not robust enough to give an accurate, pic, an accurate picture of hell. It's just not good enough. And Jesus knows that. And, and because he knows that, he's looking at these people who are rejecting him, knowing that their rejection is going to lead to that ruin in hell. And here's the thing, it produces deep emotion in Jesus. I mean, he weeps over that. He doesn't look at them and shake a fist and say, hey, you know what? You're going to get what you did. That's not how he approaches that moment. He approaches that moment with deep grief over the ruin that awaits them. That's how he approaches it. That could be avoidable. If they would just come to him, it could be avoidable. But it produces this deep ache inside of his soul. He's weeping over this. Okay, now here comes the turn in the morning. And I want to just begin to apply this and and have us think through. what 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 should this mean for our life as we see a passage like this? On Tuesday or Wednesday night, uh, we had some friends over. They ate dinner with us, and um, we're on the back porch. And uh, at some point in the conversation, uh, the guy looked at me and said, man, how are you doing? And my response to him was, gosh, I, I think in one way I want to answer pretty good. I, mean, I think things are, are going well overall. Um, but, man, in another way, I am seeing signs of unhealth in me that make me really fearful And and really it's just causing me to plead with the Lord for some things. And and here is the sign that I am seeing in me that I don't like right now and I'm asking the Lord to redeem in me. That when I'm looking at my soul deep down and looking at what produces grief and what produces joy in my soul, I am seeing that most of what produces grief is not connected to Jesus and most of what produces joy is not connected to Jesus. That there is a disconnect there. And listen, what looking at and paying attention to what in your soul produces grief that you can cry over and what produces joy in your life, what is doing that that is like that is like sticking a thermometer into your mouth, letting it sit there, taking it out and you kind of getting a sense of your spiritual temperature. That is what your emotions are doing in that moment. And and, and I'm just looking at mine and saying, man, I I think that there is some sickness in me right now that I'm just needing the Lord to redeem in me. It's a sign of of unhealth in me. Now let me press this on you for just a moment. One of the most dependable signs of spiritual health in your life. Now think about that. How How are you determining spiritual health right now in your life? One of the most dependable signs of spiritual health right now in your life is the ability to grieve over what grieves Jesus and to rejoice in what overjoys Jesus. I wanna say this one more time. One of the most dependable signs of spiritual health in your life and in my life is our ability to grieve over what grieves Jesus And to rejoice in what overjoys Jesus. Now, that is much different than how most people kind of get a diagnostic of their spiritual health. Most people look at their life, and and here's their diagnostic their diagnostic is let me look and, and look at my life and see if I can see moral living. Like, am I living rightly? And if I'm living rightly, the next conclusion is, therefore, I must be spiritually healthy. But that is not the way, it's not the most dependable way to to kind of get a clue of your spiritual health. And this passage even alludes to that. Who gets the harshest words in Matthew 23? The Pharisees, right? And ironically, they are the ones living rightly. The, The ones living rightly in this passage are actually the ones that are the most spiritually sick in this passage. So just looking at your life for like morality is not a sign. It's not the most dependable sign of spiritual health. Looking at your life and asking this question, am I weeping over what Jesus weeps over and and am I enjoying and celebrating what Jesus celebrates in and finds joy in? Is my heart so vitally connected with Jesus that I can do that? That I can weep over what he weeps over and I can celebrate what he celebrates? Is that happening in me? And hear me, if it's not, Man, this is a morning that God is like specifically designed for you to begin to plead with the Lord along with me that the Lord would take our hearts back there. That the Lord would, the Lord would do that for us this morning. The Lord would usher us back into that. Now let me apply this with, with two, different, uh, kind of two different ways. Here's the first way I want to apply it. And, and this is under the category of knowing that your spiritual health, the most dependable sign of your spiritual health is your ability to weep, over what grieves Jesus and to to really rejoice in what overjoys Jesus. In light of that, two applications. Number one, does your heart ache for those rejecting Jesus? Does it ache for those rejecting Jesus? I want to just let that linger for a moment. Does your heart ache over those right now in your neighborhood in your workplace, in your family, in your city? Is there anguish there? Like you're looking at unbelief. You're looking at hardness of heart. You're looking at just a person that is spiritually blinded. And is there deep anguish and ache and sorrow over that? Like an ache that just won't go away. Do you feel that deep down in your bones? And hear me, Jesus feels that. And part of what it means to be vitally connected to Jesus, our hearts and Jesus' heart doing this, is that we feel that along with Jesus, that he would transfer that ache to us and now we carry his ache for our world, this world. We carry that with us. Maybe I could just ask it this way. When is the last time you have wept over the brokenness and sin and hardness of heart and unbelief around you? When is the last time that's happened? We can take it a step further. Has that ever happened? This is one of the signs of spiritual health in us, that we can weep over what grieves Jesus and rejoice in what overjoys Jesus. When is the last time that we have been able to cry tears of grief over the brokenness and lostness and hardness and coldness and godlessness that is around us? And I think there's two things that we can weep over when we think about the lostness around us. There's one side that we can look at a person and know where that leads them. That is leading to ruin. Like refusal now means ruin later. That's the connection here in this text. Refusal, rejection of Jesus leads to utter ruin in their life. And we should be able to look at people that we love and weep over. Man, I don't even know what all that means. What what ruin is going to be like for people who reject Jesus. I just know that the Bible paints it in such terrible colors that it should produce deep grief in us. So so we should grieve for their sake, but we should also grieve for God's sake. I I think we should be able to grieve with the psalmist in Psalm 119, 136, when he says, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Because we are taking something that is precious and beautiful, namely God himself, and with our hardness or with others' hardness, with their hardness, with their rejection of him, they're taking something ultimately and supremely valuable and treating it as insignificant. They're taking a God that we love and they're just not treating him with the esteem and honor that he deserves. We should be able to grieve over that. Now, let me take this one step further and press this just uh, uh, you know, one or two more steps here. And I want you to see in this passage, you know, Matthew 23, I want you to see that in this passage, it is not truth or tears. In this passage, it is truth and tears. That's the key that I want you to see. It's it's both and. See, in this passage, it's not just Jesus with tears. He is also giving bone-crushing truth in Matthew 23, isn't he? I mean, it is hard truth that he's delivering in Matthew 23. But on the other side, it's not just Jesus with all this bone-crushing truth. It's it's Jesus with that bone-crushing truth, but at the end of the chapter, it is that same Jesus who gives those uppercuts of truth that is weeping over those people who are rebelling against him. It's not truth or tears, it's truth and tears. That that is the key, and now hear me on this. It's that combination that the church has so often missed in its history. I'm gonna say that just one more time. I'm just praying that the Lord would help us feel this this morning. It is that combination that we see in Jesus in Matthew 23 of truth plus tears that the church of Jesus Christ has been missing for so much of its history. And listen, there are parts of the church right now in America and around the world who are all tears and no truth. And that is a travesty. And at the same time, there is so much of the church that is all truth and no tears. And hear me on this, that is an equal travesty. It is an equal deformation of the character of God when we don't have either of those. And if there's one thing that I worry about for our church family, I worry about this, do we have the tears to go with our truth? Can we weep over these things that we can so eloquently talk about? Can we do that? Do we have tears? Are we missing tears or do we have tears? Is it truth without tears or is it truth with tears? That's the number one concern I have. So just think about the moral issues of the day. So when it comes to homosexuality, when it comes to abortion, when it comes to um, racism and racial reconciliation, when it comes to grace alone, faith alone, and Jesus alone, that he's the only way. Listen, here's the thing. Church, we have the truth on these things. It's not like the Bible has changed on us. We've got the truth. But my question to you and me is, do we have the tears to go with the truth? I was listening to one of my favorite pastors. uh, Years ago, I heard the story of him. He he was on this panel with a group of other pastors. And uh, on this panel, whoever was moderating, asked one of the, the other pastors on the panel a question. And this other guy was kind of a young whippersnapper, young, bright, you know, young pastor guy. And so he's asked the question and man, he just goes on an eloquent rant about this thing. So whatever he was asked, I mean, he just slayed it. So it's, this thing is horrible and these people are, you know, I mean, he just, he did it. He, he made it happen right there in that moment. And then my, my favorite pastor guy, he, he looked down the, the row after he finished giving that response and he said, you know, I have always loved your writing. I think you're very bright. I think you have an incredible future. I think you have incredible insight. I think you have all of those things. But every time I read your stuff, it always feels like for me there is one thing missing. And the one thing is tears. And I just wonder, in in the midst of us being right on things, saying the right things, believing the right things, doctrine that is sound, I just wonder if some of us are missing the tears to go with it. And here's why that is so important. Right thinking and right living without tears quickly dissolves into self-righteousness. Right thinking and right living without tears quickly dissolves into self-righteousness. I mean, this is kind of the ironic thing about this passage, isn't it? The Pharisees are right on all the issues but they are right without weeping. And because they are right without weeping, they are ultimately very wrong. You seen that connection? I mean, they're right on the issues. But because they're right without weeping, in the end, they are wrong. That's the whole problem. This passage is showing us, the Pharisees are showing us that being right without tears can actually be the worst sort of wrong. I'm just praying that the Lord helps us feel this. The Pharisees are showing us that, that being right without weeping, without tears, can be the worst sort of wrong. Without tears, there are few things more dangerous in our lives than actually being right. Without tears, there are few things as dangerous as you and I being right on the issue. I mean, this is why it's so important for us to not just be right on truth, but to make sure our truth is accompanied with tears. So let me come back to this question. When is the last time that you have been able to weep over lostness and brokenness and blindness and hardness? Let me just apply this to evangelism for a moment. And this is really where this passage is taking us. I mean, Jesus is weeping over people who are rejecting him and are ultimately gonna be spiritually ruined because of their rejection. So let me just apply it to evangelism. The most important ingredient in evangelism So hear me on, the most important ingredient in evangelism isn't another memorized verse. The most important ingredient in evangelism is a tenderized heart. It's not just another like, let me get all the verbiage down so that I can pin this person down and make sure they say the right thing at the right. That's not the most important thing. The most important thing is that we would have a tenderized heart who could actually weep over lostness. Who would feel such a deep ache in us that we would carry a burden everywhere we go? People are rejecting Jesus and it's gonna to lead to their utter ruin, and that breaks me up. I, you know, Paul gives us the permission to go there. I, one, of my, one of my favorite four or five verses in the Bible is, is the front end of Romans 9. And in the front end of Romans 9, the first five verses, Paul starts it with these two verses. In verses 1 and 2, he says, this is going to be on the screen for you. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Now the question is, what is producing that sorrow and anguish? Why does he carry this deep ache inside of him right now? Why is that? Now think about your life for a second. When is the last time you have felt deep ache and what was that for? And there's many reasons, we live in a fallen world, there's many reasons that you could have deep ache over, but just ask yourself if, if Paul's deep ache, the source of Paul's deep ache, is ever the source of your deep ache. Here's what he says to explain why he fills this anguish and unending sorrow. He says, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all. And he's looking at his brothers and here's what's producing the deep ache. He's looking at them who have been afforded every advantage every blessing that the Lord could give upon a people, he's given it to them. Kindness upon kindness from the Lord and yet they are rejecting him. And and Paul is looking at them and the ache runs so deep that he is literally saying, I would be willing to suffer their ruin for them. I feel such a deep ache. I would take their utter ruin if they could avoid it. It's that sort of deep ache. And I'm asking all of us, do we have that sort of deep ache for people who are on their way to ruin? Do we have that? Can we weep over that? Can we cry over that? And part of the reason that I feel so deeply about this right now for us, just our particular church family, the church at large, is I think this ache and this soul sadness, this sort of anguish for conversions... That that ironically reflects the heart of God and that God gives to His people, His bride, the church. I think it is absent in way too much of the Church of Jesus Christ. I just don't think it's there in way too much of the church. Last year, I read a biography book uh, of a guy named George Whitfield. He's one of the guys that the Lord used to um, really usher in the Great Awakenings, uh, the revivals in America and Europe. And uh, in one part of his book, I was just so. I was so awed throughout the book at just his unending ache for conversions. I mean, he just woke up thinking about it, went to sleep thinking about it. He just could not stop thinking about people are going to to experience utter ruin apart from receiving Jesus. And just maybe the Lord might want to use me to get in the way of that. He just couldn't get away from it. In one part of his book, he said, oh, that I could do more for for him, for God. Oh, that I was a flame of pure and holy fire and had a thousand lives to spend in the Redeemer's service. The sign of so many perishing souls affects me so much and makes me long to go if possible from pole to pole to proclaim redeeming love. Man, I'm praying that we'd have that sort of ache. Or how about this one from Charles Spurgeon? Probably the greatest Baptist evangelistic sort of preacher that we have ever had. He says it this way. If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. God, pray that we would feel that somewhere deep in us. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Gosh, that God would give us that ache. Man, that we could weep with Jesus like that. So do you have that ache? Do you have that deep soul stirring for people who are rejecting Jesus? Has the Lord transferred his tender heart to you so that you could actually weep over those who are rebelling against him? And lastly, let me apply it this way and we'll be done. So it's not only does your heart, you know, weep over the rejection of others with Jesus, it's does your heart ache over the Jerusalem that is still in you? He's looking at Jerusalem. He's saying, oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, man, God has been so kind to you. We have been so gracious to you, but you're still refusing me. You're still cold toward me. You're still hard toward me. You're still rejecting me. And if you have any self-awareness of your own heart, you know that that's still in you somewhere. You know that there are parts of you where that describes you. And let me ask you the question, when you look at your own life and your own sin and your own godlessness and your own coldness and your own unbelief and the many ways every day that we rebel against God, try to set up our own little authority and our own little kingdom in our, our lives, when is the last time that you have actually wept over that? Not just the sin of others, but your own sin, your own hardness. Uh, Last Sunday, I played tennis with Dan Hutchins. You got to watch him on the court, man. He's sneaky out there. And, uh, you know, I'm minding my own business trying to just hit a ball in. That's really my only goal out there. I just want to hit the ball in, please. And it was amazing. At one point in playing last Sunday, just my mind left to think about nothing other than getting the ball in for one minute. I was so far in a ditch mentally that when I like recognized what I was thinking about and what I was entertaining in that moment, it sent shudders down my spine. That that sort of godlessness and evil and sin still exist in me. I would think, I mean, it, it made me just resonate with Paul in Romans 7, where he looks up at God just in tears saying, God, who is going to deliver me from this body of death? God, it's about time for some of these things to be put to death in me. And I, I just wonder when the last time you've been able to look at your own godlessness and your own just soul sort of rejection of God and your own stiff arming of God and your own just callousness that we so often develop between us and God, and that you have been able to weep over that, to cry over that. And let me tell you why that is so important that we can do that. Until we shed tears of grief over our sin, we'll never cry tears of joy over Jesus. Grace will never electrify us until sin crushes us. Those are always tied together. And if you want the electrification of grace, it always comes with the crushing of sin. If we want to weep for joy over Jesus, we first have to weep in grief over our sin. They're always connected like that. And let me press that one step further. Until we shed tears of grief over our sin, it will be impossible to effectively engage people in their sin. Until we can shed tears of grief over our sin, it will be impossible for us to effectively engage people in their sin. it we'll always feel like we're a bully in that moment until we can begin to cry over our own sin. I listened to this story the other day of this lady who was um, trying to share the gospel with a Jewish woman. And, uh, and kind of her first goal in this conversation was not even to get to Jesus. It was just to apologize for all the horrendous things that have been done to Jews in the name of Jesus. So first, first right out of the box, she just wants to apologize for that. So they start this conversation, and there she goes. The first thing she says is she just wants to apologize for, and she couldn't even finish her sentence, and she just started crying. And she kept crying. And she kept crying. And she kept crying. And And finally, this poor Jewish lady is actually being the one that's trying to console her and kind of bring her back from the brink here. And she it just like totally just the whole moment dissolved into crying. She just couldn't get it back together. The conversation ends, they go on their kind of separate ways. And she's thinking, oh my gosh, I've totally, I'm totally blown this moment. I missed my moment to talk about Jesus. And then ironically, a week later, this Jewish lady calls her, asks her where she goes to church, and that she wants to go along with her. And I'm just saying this in that story. I think our evangelism would go from here to here if it wasn't just truth, but if it had tears to go with it. If it was accompanied by tears. You know, I I don't know how you feel about Midlothian and kind of this South Dallas area that the Lord has just sovereignly placed us in. I never would have dreamed that I would be, first of all, pastoring. I feel like I have to reconvince myself every time I say that I'm a pastor, that I'm actually a pastor. But then I'm also, I'm just, I'm, I've always been so shocked that I landed in Midlothian. How does that, how does that happen? I, it's just crazy to me. And, and what I'm so shocked by is that the Lord has made this place home for me. And I love our area. I love the South Dallas area. And I want to see the South Dallas area flourish. I want to see it be all that God would want it to be. And if that's your heart for this area, if you want to see along with me for the Lord to do what the Lord wants to do in this area, if you want to see that, then I think it begs the question, what kind of gifts can we give this area? What would be the best gifts that we can give this area? And here's what I'm convinced of. Behind the gift of Jesus, the best gift we could give our area are tears. And I pray that we would be a church that would allow Jesus to take us there. Amen. Let's pray together. I want to give you just a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you the things that would be most helpful this morning and to wipe away the things that wouldn't be. And first off, if you are a person that's in the room, And you've never, if you've never laid down your arms and received Jesus, there's never been that moment where you have turned from your sin and thrown your life upon Jesus. And please don't confuse right living with repenting. The Pharisees were living right, they just never repented. So don't confuse the two. So, so if there's never been a moment where you've taken your life and thrown it upon Jesus, just recognizing your need, and he's the only one who can rescue you and throwing your life upon him, man, may this be your moment. If you've never done that, if, if written over your life is still the phrase, but he or she was unwilling to come, but I want you to know that God's heart is grieved over that. He's been so kind to you, sending you one warning after another, this being another, this morning. And he's grieved by that. And this could be the morning where you walk out no longer refusing to come to him, no longer refusing him and instead accepting utter ruin, no longer refusing him, but but receiving him. Man, may this be your moment if it's never happened. And if that's you, if you'll fill out that guest card underneath you, you can check that box, Establishing a Relationship with Jesus. Put that in the offering basket. Man, we'd love to celebrate with you today. And for the rest of us in the room, how's your spiritual health looking? Can you weep and grieve over what grieves Jesus? And can you Rejoice in what overjoys Jesus. That's your thermometer this morning. When you pull that out and look at it, what's it saying about your spiritual health? And if, like me, you're seeing that, God, would you help me? If you're seeing a spiritual fever in your life, And here's what would be appropriate this morning. To bring that to God. Confess that to the Lord. And for you to repent of that. For you to ask the Lord for help. And here is what the Lord promises to do. When we ask for help, he promises to deliver. He promises to come into that moment and give us the help that we so desperately need. So Father, would you do that this morning? Father, would you help us? We're just, we are poor men crying out for help. Poor women crying out for help, knowing that you're the only one who can redeem our poverty. You're the only one who can come inside of our spiritual poverty, our spiritual fever, and give us the health that we need. And God, would you do that? God, would you make us a church that has truth and tears? Not not just tears, not just truth, but truth truth. And tears. God, would you help us in this? It's in your good name that we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.